Come on, let's go. By shortwave broadcast, direct from important overseas capitals, we are about to broadcast this moment in our history. Hello and welcome to the History Workshop Podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Back in September 2022, a group of public historians drawn from inside and outside academia met at London's Birkbeck College in the heart of Bloomsbury to ask, what is public history now? I came to the conference to listen in on the conversations, to record the voices of some of the participants, and to follow along on a walking tour led by Birkbeck's Mike Berlin, who guided us into Bloomsbury's radical past. Is everyone comfortable? Uh, can you hear me? Yes. So my name is Mike Berlin, and I work for Birkbeck and HCN. What I wanted to do is, is to explore this area and to think about it in terms of public history and radical history and what it tells us. So the talk is entitled uh, A Radical History of Bloomsbury. And it's in terms of public history, it's a bit of a misnomer because on, the, on one hand, uh, as you will see from your notes, this area is replete, it's filled with historical stories, with uh, important places, with uh, the origin of particular radical movements of one kind or another of, 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 from a whole spectrum of, 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 of points of view. On the other hand, the type of the kind of topography and the built environment and the uh, the, the patterns of land ownership in this area have meant historically that the type of radicalism that we're looking at, in a sense, is, a, is a socially a very specific type. It's most often associated with like a radical intelligentsia, middle class intelligentsia. So to look at from the perspective of uh, the traditions of uh, history from below, working class history, radical political movements of, of working people in the past, you almost have to think about this area as being an area that gets invaded, uh, that is surrounded by uh, neighborhoods and communities and quarters that are posing some kind of threat to this area. And so a lot of what we'll be talking about and looking at is that, that kind of liminal status and that conflict between center and periphery. It's most That's the sort of thing that they didn't like. So for most of the 1920s, so what is public history? What does it consist of and who is it for? Those were just some of the questions that the two-day conference set out to address. To shepherd us through what resulted, I'll hand over to my history workshop colleague, Julia Late, who runs Birkbeck's MA in Public Histories and who put together the AHRC network that convened the conference and that like the conference was titled what is public history now? I put this network together because of the remarkable surge in interest in public history in the UK Academy over the past half decade. Public history programs at undergraduate and graduate levels have rapidly increased in number, and more and more academics are getting involved with making and co-producing public history. All this is underwritten, of course, by a rich intellectual tradition but the explosion of exciting research projects, programs, and collaborations in the present feels almost unprecedented. 
With it has come many pressing questions, including how can we better work together and bridge divides between public historians outside and inside universities? What does a historian do and who is a historian? Joe Saunders, a freelance historian who is part of the family history community, weighs in. I'm Joe Saunders. Uh, I'm a professional historian, so I, I do basically freelance research, mainly family history, but some sort of house history research and sort of lookups in archives for, for people, that kind of thing, transcriptions. Um, I'm a part-time PhD student at the University of York in early modern England, and um, in my spare time I'm a quite passionate local historian and I'm involved with the British Association for Local History. So I'm a trustee and I sit on the Board of Trustees and I, I'm a member of the outreach team as well. I think it's such a powerful thing to research your family history, you know, to research any type of history. It's a way that we learn about the world around us and where we come from and who we are. I think there are different types of historian. I think a lot of people are doing history in some way and I think history, you know, what is history? Um, so, and I think that's one of the beautiful things about it is that, that you can be a historian in many different ways, same as there's many different forms of history. You know, is a historian somebody who has qualifications and a, and a paid role? That's one type of history. Is a historian someone who reads avidly, you know, history books? That's also another type of history. Is a historian somebody who do you have to research and go into an archive or or look at documents to be a historian? I mean, we're quite consciously we're sitting here, you know, being recorded for this, you know, podcast type thing. That kind of history is something that wouldn't have happened, uh, you know, a decade or more ago. I think you've got different forms of social media as well that enable people to be historians on social media, you know, YouTube or TikTok or, you know, writing blogs and that kind of thing. I probably am a public historian the more I think about it, but it wouldn't be a term that I would use. I think it's a title that I wouldn't apply to myself um, and I think it's only really applied in academic settings. But the more I think about it, the more we hear definitions of what public historians are, actually family and local historians are, are doing all of that, but you, you just wouldn't call yourself one. I think academic historians, to me, are often centre themselves as the, the centre of historical research and practice, and I think actually um, for them to then identify as a public historian is acknowledging this wide, wide world of practising historians who are mostly amateurs, mostly unpaid, you know, doing family and local history research, and I think public history, to me, seems like a term that academic historians are using to maybe tap into that or to try and, um, vert, and it is a good thing I think to self-consciously step out of the ivory tower, um, step out of the academy, um, to think about those engagements and without sight of a, a, a university history department. We were keen to explore all the new ways of practicing history, but also the challenges that come with them for all practitioners of history in public. To this end, the conference welcomed the History at Risk Network, founded by University of Manchester historians Jerome de Groot and Louise Moss, and including public historians from all around the world. Their aim is to explore the way that making history can be risky and even dangerous in different global contexts, and what is at stake for historians and for history itself in what Jerome calls the turbocharged context of different kinds of culture wars. My name is Jerome DeGroote uh, and I'm just going to take you through what we're going to do. So I've, we've uh, put together this sort of discussion really around these central questions that are part of our focus 
uh, in this network that we've, we've been working on over the last year or so, but which has actually only really formally kicked off uh, this month. So it's really exciting to be here to talk about some of these ideas. Um, so what our Histories at Risk network that um, Eloise and I have put together um, is interested in is thinking about the experience of uh, teaching and writing and working in the field of broadly considered public history or public commemoration or public memory in the UK and abroad and comparing those experiences. In part, it's a kind of exercise in solidarity. So it's about talking to our colleagues in Brazil or our colleagues in Russia or our colleagues um, in Australia, Indonesia, and thinking about the ways in which we might be able to learn from one another and offer support. Partly, it's about trying to particularise and understand the British experience at this moment in time, the kind of politically motivated in interference that we seem to be seeing quite substantially in the UK at present. And to think outside the university, to think about co-production and, co and collaboration, and to put that, that, that conversation um, into uh, debate and dialogue with the experience of our colleagues around the world. So the first question is about the kind of weirdly supercharged, turbocharged context of doing public history that has kind of happened in the last five years in this country. Um, when I started writing about public history and we all started doing this kind of work maybe about sort of 10, 15 years ago, this, it didn't really feel as crucial, as scary even. So this question is kind of new, I think, um, to my experience of thinking about public history. And that's my privilege as a white European scholar, obviously, and I recognise that, but it's part of the point of the, um, the network is to, to think outside that. We also spent some time during the conference discussing the perils and possibilities of social media for history making, something that's particularly important to History Workshop, who are producing a radical digital history magazine. Eloise Moss. So I am increasingly quiet on Twitter, as some of you will have noticed, though, if amongst you are my thousand followers, thank you. Um, I'm sorry, um, because I have been quiet. But I am increasingly scared to talk about the kinds of research that I do on Twitter and to experience that massive pylon. And this kind of leads me into a sort of one of the key things that I think we need about to think about in terms of politicised context, which are the sites of history and how they have changed over time, the spaces in which we tell our narratives about the past. Um, so when we're talking about public history, we're often thinking about museums, television, um, places that have a kind of set of rules, have a, um, a kind of set of bureaucracy bureaucrats who oversee or give permission to put that history out there and who, if you think that's going to be particularly controversial, you could then revert to and say, well, it was passed by these guys and they might have a lovely media department to handle it. But I think in, with increasingly sort of controversial histories that we're interested in telling, those sites actually aren't always able to provide the the full capacity for freedom of speech necessarily or aren't necessarily receptive to telling the stories that we want to tell, which brings us to sites such as social media, at which point we do become inherently vulnerable, inherently knowable as people and as historians, we are no longer hidden behind our institutional shields and our personal information is out there too. Also, as teachers of history, I go into a lecture theatre and I say, okay, we're going to teach on this now. I must not indoctrinate you into my political ideologies through this lesson. However, 
However, you could spend about two minutes Googling me on Twitter and find out exactly what I think about Boris Johnson. And you, you can debate with me, and we've got to have space for respectful debate in here. But basically, they know where I'm coming from now. And that's very much a question of how we retain some authority as historians. Should we retain that kind of authority as a supposedly sort of objective giver of knowledge? And, and again, this issue of what sites are we actually using to tell the past and how does that leave us vulnerable? Part of the beauty of social media when it started, particularly Twitter, was, that was, was getting close to people. Like the whole point was that you could tweet whomever and they might respond to you. I was quite idealistic about social media when it first started. Everyone, everyone was. There were loads of books about how social media is going to change the world and make everyone better people and have a different comments. <laughs> I'm not even joking. This is 10 years ago, not that long ago, where you know, the idea of a sort of new social commons and it being and not, not having gatekeepers and the gatekeepers being ignored and the institutions being not part of it any longer, that was the dream. That was what social media, and to a certain extent, the internet was designed to be and was presented as being. And then it got corporatized and then it got trumped and everything went disgusting and horrible. And yet, social media remains one of the most effective ways for historians outside of academia to build intellectual and business networks. Here's Natalie Pithers, a genealogical consultant and freelance public historian. So I'm Natalie Pithers and I, um, I'm a family historian and I, uh, I run a membership club called the Curious Descendants Club, which I founded, which is all about helping people to write their family history. Um, and to look at kind of wider historical context when they're doing so to, to really get to the stories. Oh, well, social media has been brilliant for me. <laughs> I'm a big Twitter addict. I love Twitter. Um, but for me, I think it's been really important. I don't, I don't work inside academia, so I don't have access to that network. I'm not going to go along to a lecture or run many events like this, like this public history event, and meet people within those circles. So actually, Twitter has provided that for me instead. So just by seeing perhaps an academic have a conversation and going along and asking a question and learning from them or, or then you know, presenting a different point of view from a kind of family history point of view. Um, so it's let me build a network that I just wouldn't have had any other way, really. So for me, it's been really instrumental. And then in an economic sense, it's also where I get most of my work. It's where most people find me to access my services and to join my membership club. So, um, so it's got that, that dual importance to me. Well, I think first I've got to acknowledge that I'm only responsible to myself. So I'm not responsible to an institution. Um, in some ways, that's more scary because if I mess up my Twitter presence, then I have no job. I have no clients come in. Um, but on the other hand, it also gives me a certain degree of freedom, I suppose, to be myself. And actually, um, I'm more likely to get customers by being myself because people buy off of people that they get to know and they like. So there's, there's a kind of economic value to it, I suppose. But I think, I, I suppose my advice in terms of protecting yourself would be to set your own rules with what you're comfortable with. Um, I tend to try not to share things that are like absolutely absolute in viewpoints or things that are going to be marginalising, but you know, I do sometimes share my own political opinions, especially when it's something that I feel really strongly about. I try to do so in a more positive way than, than just pointing out the negatives all the time. And it's certainly not the main gist of my Twitter account. My 
Twitter account is primarily about family history and I, I would always want it to be primarily about family history. It's more like occasionally I cannot resist showing my own opinion because something really irks me or I have strong belief about something. So I think setting your own rules about what you're comfortable sharing and what you're not and not forcing yourself to cross those boundaries because of any social pressure or any pressure from the institution you're working with. But also just engaging in conversations. I think it's really important. I think that's the, the real power of social media. You know, and, and choosing which conversations you want to engage with. If you find something very distasteful, you don't have to engage in that conversation. But if you find a thread that you find really positive, being brave enough to just say, yes, I agree, or have you thought about it in this way, um, you know, it can be really powerful. Does it feel like a democratising influence? It does for me, yeah. Yeah, somebody from a kind of more working-class background, I think for me it's been pretty instrumental. I, I don't think I could do what I do without it. And I certainly wouldn't have met the people that I've met without it. And I think I've learned a lot as well from, from seeing posts from probably you know, people of different racial backgrounds or religious backgrounds that I probably wouldn't have read if they hadn't have come up on my Twitter feed and I'd seen somebody that I like and respect also share it. And then that, you know, it's very shallow, but that probably made me go, oh, why are they sharing that and read it? and learn from it and I, I probably wouldn't have done that so it's definitely broadened my horizons I think I don't know that I'm representative of everybody but, um, but I'm sure I can't be the only one For me, Natalie's comments were an important reflection on what it means to be a historian at large without the support of an institution and the particular challenges and freedoms that come with it and of course the issues Natalie raises on authority and legitimacy don't just pertain to social media it raises questions about whose voices count in the making of historical knowledge, as anyone gathering oral history interviews has had to confront. At the conference, we were very keen to hear from public history students, many of whom have experience in public history long before they decided to study it formally. Here's Clara Cook, a public historian and podcaster, and a student at Birkbeck. So my name is Clara Cook and I'm about to embark on a Master's in Public Histories at Birkbeck in about two weeks' time. So I have been a bit hesitant to describe myself as a public historian, partly because for me personally the term has connotations attached to it in the sense that I feel like I have to either be qualified academically to be a public historian or I have to be doing it as a profession you know, that, I'm, that I'm paid for or employed, employed as. But having attended the conference today, I really do feel like the term does apply to me and what I've been doing. Uh, so I am going to claim I'm going to claim the term public historian for myself <laughs> for, for for the future. Yes. So I've done a lot of oral history interviews, primarily as a as a volunteer. Um, and what I found with oral history is when you interview the average everyday person, and you're not interviewing somebody who's an expert in a subject, they often wonder why their voice is important. They ask, like, why would you want to know what I have to say? Um, I'm not an expert, I'm not a historian, I'm not an academic, um, I'm not a broadcaster. And it does take some convincing to get people to tell their story, to, to, to give them, I would say, to empower them, to use their voice to say what they think and how they feel. And with oral history specifically, people are relating a particular historical time period or they're relating a historical event uh, or they're telling about their experience with a particular um, field or particular, I guess, part of the world. So in recent years, I interviewed people talking about their experiences of libraries. And some of these individuals had started off going to the library as small children, like during World War II. 
And one of the things that's interesting with oral history is they can't remember the dates for things. They are very concerned that they may have got a fact wrong. And sometimes the actual interview they're giving is so emotional that they often are very... Um, I would say that their view of things is very much their own personal view. It's very coloured by their emotions and their memories, which can be faulty and can be biased. And I guess I wondered a little bit how that fitted in with public history, especially in relation to some of the stuff that was asked today about how much we trust the public. You know, I know the public isn't this big homogenous group. I know it's made up of lots of diverse individuals. But... Like, do we trust the public to um, make good decisions about history? Do we trust them to tell true history? Do we trust them to question the history they're given? And do we trust them to know the difference between fact and fiction, you know? Do we want to hear from people who are just interested in history, like me? Or do we want to also always hear from people who are established historians, who, you know, did a PhD, have published papers, published books and, you know, may have documentaries on TV. I mean, who defines what's an expert and what isn't an expert, you know? Do we trust the public? Who is an expert? These are huge questions, particularly when so much of the history wars is being filtered through a conservative media. Many conference speakers reminded us what is at stake today when we are telling stories about the past especially ones that focus on marginalized and racialized communities. Manasi Papale, a design consultant, decided to start offering walking tours in Westminster on the history of the British Empire a few years ago. Here, she reflects on her experience so far. Uh, my name is Mansi. I run the History Speak Creative Consultancy, and what I mainly consult on are heritage uh, projects that deal with decolonization or contested heritage. I'm very scared of calling myself a historian because I never studied history. I still don't. I mean, I rely on the work of historians to then tell the story. But uh, as someone at the conference today called me, uh, I would then consider myself a public history practitioner. My background is actually in design and I'm very interested in the way architecture and the built environment conveys power. So it's again, I guess, part of uh, public history because the public experiences built spaces. And as part of this, I also conduct the British Empire walking tour in central London. Uh, mainly, in, we start in Westminster and we talk about the history of colonization and decolonization as it is represented through the statues, monuments and the built environment. But we also look at things like soft power, the interaction between uh, symbols of colonization and decolonization occupying the same space, and also what um, contemporary movements look like in that space when I'm walking around with my visitors, which is usually a protest and a stationary helicopter just overhead. Mm -hmm. It's been very interesting. On the one hand, when I started, I mean, I was due to start, I started researching this in 2019, actually. Um, and I was like, uh, and uh, I was planning to do it in 2020. And then as we know, the world went into lockdown, I couldn't do it. And the Black Lives Matter movement also started. So I did have some moments of hesitation saying that, okay, am I putting myself in danger because I'm not backed by an institution? I'm going to be exposing myself to the public. How's it going to work? So it did take a little psyching myself off. 
and I have so far been lucky. I know people who do similar work who haven't and who faced abuse. So, you know, not to say that this won't happen to me in the future. It is potential danger that we always put ourselves into when we do this work. But what kind of drives us to do this work is that there is massive interest and interest from people who look very very different like and when i say diverse i mean everyone so there's this assumption that when we do this kind of work it's meant for a certain type of people which when you actually start doing the work you realize it's not true people are interested because they also want to know the bits that they haven't been told and no one likes being lied to or no one likes being kept in the dark or being manipulated so this is one way that people try to find out what's what else is out there uh, the other thing especially with storytelling conflict is key there's no good story without conflict and there's no better story with conflict than the history of the british empire so there is an element of excitement and entertainment that is also kind of baked in into this kind of an experience i purposely call it the british empire walking tour i'm very ambiguous about whether i think it's it was good or bad which is again i think a very pointless question so i talk about systems of empire i talk about representation in public spaces uh, about how power is constructed and these are universal ideas and these are ideas that you can then go and critique even an office building with so i find that once people have bought it and they come in to the walking tour it's much easier the second thing is that it's much nicer to do it face to face in public and have that actual human interaction and uh, people are not as mean to you in person as they can be online so um even though online looks scary and these things feel like they're magnified when you actually interact with another human being no matter how different your views are there is a bit of kindness that we can rely on each other for which is a really powerful thing that happens in public spaces and which is why i think that the telling of public history and going back to the original form of telling history which is oral history and communicating and sharing these stories is so powerful so um yeah every time i stand with my little placard saying british empire walking tour in parliament square <laughs> I get looks, I get inquiries, I also people just like roll their eyes. I get all those reactions, but so far so good and I'm going to keep doing it. <laughs> There's something so hopeful about Manassi's observations, which highlight the enduring interest in hearing even very fraught and controversial stories and the power of telling them in person, face to face. History has always been political and politicized, as Sharon Hirsch who splits her time between Manchester Metropolitan University and the Manchester People's History Museum, explains. I'm not sure that history has become more politicised or newly politicised. I think history is always a battle over what we think is significant and should be studied. And maybe it's just become more visible, in, certainly in this country, but perhaps um, with kind of wider kind of trends around kind of culture wars and kind of far right drawing and, and, and it's become more of a visible battle but that battle has always existed in history as a discipline and what we what we think is important and what we teach in our schools and and what we commemorate and and what we learn learn about and think is worthy of research is is, is always a political battle maybe it has become more visible um, maybe in the university but people who for example if you're thinking about black british history Almost all of the best uh, black British histories um, were often done outside of the university and they weren't seen as kind of respectable enough or worthy of being studied in, in, in a university setting. 
but that, that was a highly politicised and kind of rejected within the academy kind of history. Um, and maybe some of that stuff is beginning to come into the academy more through social movements, and so it's becoming more of a, an open balance in terms of what we teach and the relationship to the state and to the government inside the university, but more widely as a kind of concept of history. I, I think it's, it has and always will be a politicised space. Back with Mike Berlin, the group is thinking about political and radical space in another, more physical way. So uh, these were in uh, uh, the eastern side of Gordon Square and from uh, number 51 to 43 was the epicenter of the so-called Bloomsbury movement. And this is a classic example, I think in sort of public historical terms, of a place of memory, a place that in a sense is um, a plotted uh, memorialized space which has a very distinctive layering of memory and people particularly guided walks and literary history takes in these areas does it count as radical history is a good question because in terms of um, social sexual artistic exper and intellectual experimentation the answer would be most definitely yes um, very famously uh, the conversations, the interactions, the relationships, the experimentation in terms of forms of writing of the novel, uh, experimentation in terms of economics, Keynes living down the road and coming up with what we think of as Keynesian economics. Um, even further down the road, uh, the British Psychoanalytic Society's headquarters where the translations of Freud into English and decisions made about different wording that we still use of ego and superego and so on, all that's being worked out in the first latter part of the, 19th, the early years of the 20th century into the 1930s and 40s, um, it's a very radical tradition in, term, in terms of the intellectual life. It's challenging Victorianism, very famously Linton Strachey's um, work on the Victorians was a kind of uh, pricking the bubble of that kind of Victorian solidity of culture. On the other hand, it's another way of looking at it, um, the Bloomsbury group were incredibly elitist. Uh, their social and political activities were all based on inherited wealth. They all employed servants. Um, it's a broader question, I suppose, whether or not you would include in uh, Keynesianism as a form of radicalism, given its sort of social democratic centrist position. In political, in political economy of the 20th century. Um, and again, that speaks to a larger question. Institutions like Senate House, which was founded by the great uh, social democratic liberal thinker William Beveridge, uh, is equally kind of redolent of that welfare state, kind of creation of the welfare state idea. Is it radical in terms of public history? Some people would say yes, others would say no. It's, like it's a, a question we'd like to you know, think about and cogitate on. What makes history radical? It feels sometimes that any history that doesn't conform to a very narrow and largely outdated view of the national past is labeled woke and challenged by conservative politicians and pundits, often with significant consequences. Indeed, the genesis of the Histories at Risk network, spearheaded by Jerome de Groot and others, was Oliver Dowden's letter telling museums to stop politicizing their subjects as though an apolitical history was possible.
But one of the, one of the um, motivations for, for putting this network together was Oliver Dowden's letter to public museums, what was it, a year and a half ago, when he basically said, you know, you're publicly funding, so you shouldn't be political. Um, and, I mean, obviously that's just ludicrous, as we know. <laughs> but also, they're publicly funded institutions and having to deal with what it is to be publicly funded in the public eye. And it goes back to one of the things we talked about right at the beginning, about publicness and what, what we think public is in public history. Is it a kind of, uh, what, what I would think about kind of public service? Is it public ownership? Is it public heritage? And, and how that works in the UK is very different to how it works elsewhere. And the kind of pressure that they were being put under by Dowden a couple of, a year and a half ago is nothing to the pressure that's felt in museums across, um, across the world. And so trying to figure that, figure out a way of talking across that kind of experience is kind of really, really valuable. Meanwhile, Sharon Hirsch reflects on the way that UKIP seized upon history for its cause and the response it received from the wider community. I think that public history is done by the left and the right in this country. Just in a, the case study I talked about with um, Enoch Powell in Wolverhampton, it was the 50th anniversary of his Rivers of Blood speech and the local history group in Wolverhampton had, uh, there was quite a big UKIP organisation at the time and in partnership they had agreed to do to put in a blue plaque for Enoch Powell on his um they hadn't quite decided where it was going to go but probably in his old home in Wolverhampton Southwest and the argument by the history society well this is history he he's very well known in the area and we we just want to record the past and we're doing it in a public way so this was definitely a um, and, and there was a network which developed of different public historians, which involved kind of the church, it involved kind of um, black and Asian community groups. Um, I was involved in kind of actually a campaign that said actually a blue plaque would be a celebration of Enoch Powell. I mean, you can write about the man without doing a public history memorial in a way, and it would be a site for the far right to kind of be drawn to. And we drew from kind of people's experiences of uh, racist violence in '68 um, when he made the speech. And so there was a battle of what public history was going to take. Did we have a, a, a plaque? And in the end, there was a split in the history to group, and, and eventually they agreed that they, they wouldn't do this blue plaque um, to plow. But certainly you could see both sides of the politics at, at play in, in public history there. I think Sharon's story highlights so clearly the complexities of doing history in public, especially surrounding the idea of commemoration. The distinction between noting an event or a landmark and celebrating it remains contentious. Three years after activists rolled the statue of the slave trader Edward Colson into Bristol Harbor. Perhaps one of the key roles that public historians can play in these debates is to show how history itself is made and remade. Here's Eloise Moss on how it's the historian's responsibility to confront that directly by explaining what it is that historians do. I think something that we could usefully do with, with this network, but also for, for all of us really, is to better demystify the processes of how history gets how history gets written, what the occupation of a historian involves, what what you actually what, why there are different narratives of the past based around um, different evidence that comes to light and different personal experiences and that that would be a way of encompassing a, a wide political spectrum um, of, of views on the past whilst not necessarily having to personally engage with those you, you find particularly offensive because when we, we've been talking a lot about 
um, the sites in which history narratives are imparted, the vulnerabilities of, of that. But what I think there isn't a sort of fundamental wider understanding outside the classroom of is how history gets done and why it does change. And actually, I thought that that lack of understanding was appropriated really well by governments in recent years with that conversation about why are you rewriting the passage. Like, that's my job. Um, you know, uh, that's literally what we do. Um, but, you know, even suggesting that that in and of itself is a flawed, flawed thing to be doing, um, that's where actually we make ourselves even more vulnerable because in that process of rewriting the past, suddenly it, we're taking part in this quite elitist role that not many people necessarily understand how to do. So I just think maybe one of the things we want to do from this network is developing some resources so people know what a historian is, what they do, um, and can share access to those sites. Demystifying how history gets researched and written is a first step in the process of making the complexity of the past clearer, more accessible, and more inviting for more people to engage with. This can also facilitate collaborations between historians and others, including artists, but this is not without its challenges. Here's Niall Morjani, a storyteller, actor, and creative, and also a former public history student. So I'm Nal Morjani, uh, I am a writer and a performer. Uh, I focus on the historical in a lot of my work. I did an MA in Public History at Birkbeck that I graduated from in 2020. So it's, I've been out of it for a little while, but a lot of what I looked at during that MA has gone on to influence my creative work and practice. I think theatre in lots of ways, when it is doing history, can be, this is not a, an always thing, but is a, is a lot more practical and because there is often a physical output, there has to be a show or a thing. And so it, it's, it, it's very practical, it's very hands-on, it's very confrontational sometimes, and it's taking inspiration from the past, from figures, and especially in its more radical forms, is using those to challenge the status quo and the norms. But where I think you could maybe say public history and historians aren't necessarily always doing things that are practically focused, theatre makers and artists more broadly are often nowhere near as considerate around the theory, the ethics, the contexts for the characters and the moments they might be addressing and exploring. And I think you see that at the, what you call, I guess, the highest level of the most popular mainstream, something like Hamilton, obviously, has been asked interesting questions of with the ways they chose to address Alexander Hamilton and to present him and his relationship to enslavement in the Americas for the sake of the show. And at a sort of grassroots level, I've done lots of work with theatre and education companies who do do history workshops in primary schools and secondary schools. And because of spending time somewhere like Birkbeck doing the MA, I was able to look at what they were, what they had on their sort of like workshops and in their plays and go, oh, I, don't, I think a lot of this has some real potential problems coming out of it. And have you thought about this? And their answer was just very honest, no. Like, it's not made clear as an artist when you're in the field how you might get in touch with universities, how you might find out about projects that are going on and vice versa. I don't think universities are aware necessarily that artists might be working in certain spaces and that there's, artists generally want to be brought on. Like, And then on a human level, I think there's often too much reverence given either way. I think artists put a huge amount of reverence who aren't very historic, in their heads they're not historically minded huge amounts of reference on academics. I think they're really scared of them. I think that they're terrified that the academics are going to come in and tell them what they've been doing is wrong. So they don't either they don't get them involved or they get them involved so late that they can't if there is 
uh, academic, somebody who's just practicing history, I don't, it doesn't need to be an academic, of course, um, but somebody who's spent time thinking about these issues in a way that the artist who was looking at it hasn't. And when they do get them in, there's, it's, it's too late. The, 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 either the contributions that need, the changes that need to happen can't be made, or they just don't want to hear them in the first place. And I think, on the other side, uh, listening to sort of people within the institutions of universities, when they talk about working with artists, you think every artist out there is brilliant at what they do. And I've seen a lot of really rubbish, <laughs> what I consider sort of subjective, what I consider to be not very good or interesting or engaging art that it has been collaborated with by an institution. So that artist clearly didn't do a great job. There might have been a million reasons for why that didn't happen. So I think <laughs> the two communities sound like they think what they're doing is so different that they... And maybe they maybe there's a bit of elitism in that either way. Like, for the artist, it's the stuffy academics that would never understand. For the potentially uh, stuffy academics, it's the like, non-rigorous artists. What, they, what could they possibly contribute towards this really... Uh, important field that I have researched so hard and my department has. So I think it sort of happened in collaboration. I was just starting out as a full-time artist or in the processes of what would become me working as a full-time artist. Um, I got a job as a sort of children's theatre performer and maker in a children's storytelling centre in Stratford as I started my MA at Birkbeck. Initially I really saw myself as uh, somebody who was going to focus on writing picture books and performing kids theatre and doing storytelling shows but far more rooted in myth and legend and progressive whimsical narratives and bedtime stories for adults was the kind of thing I was doing. And it was at Birkbeck that I started to think about how creative methodologies could be really beneficial to exploring very traumatic, intense periods of history. I was speaking very personally from my grandparents' experiences of partitioning of India. There's a huge event that carries so much with it, but when you read about it frequently, it can feel stripped of that emotion. And I was like, oh, if you, you go see a beautiful, amazing theatre piece, like it can really transform and take you with it. But then I was looking at theatre pieces or films or uh, other things and going, gosh, but the rigour isn't there. Um, I mean, there's a... I'm, as if people wouldn't know what I was talking about because it's the only one that's been like... But the, so I'm just going to say it. My Father the Assassin, a really interesting show that was recently on the National Theatre, first all South Asian cast at the National Theatre, dealing with partition and Indian independence. Um, and in lots of ways, it's brilliant that it exists, and I'm so grateful it exists, but there's some fascinating historical omissions in the way that story is told. And one that I'd love to sit down with the scriptwriter and be like, how did you get there? Because I don't think you've done your job um, as an artist who's working with history. I think you've either you've got an agenda that you really want us to buy into, and that's problematic because your people will go away thinking, especially people who don't know it, but even people who do, like South Asians who have a good knowledge but wouldn't know enough to challenge will go away thinking, yeah, this is fact, this is how it went, and yeah, there's artistic in licence, but this is basically truth. And either you have an agenda and you really want us to go down a certain way which sets peaceful protest in India as, a, as the sort of heroic thing that got independence over the line and puts all violent protest as a sort of evil that was associated with the far right, which isn't true to the nuance of it at all and really idolises Gandhi. Or you just didn't do your research and that's how you ended up with the story the way you did because you bought into a national myth that has, been, has pervaded since independence and continues to pervade but like you haven't done enough and so I, I and I watched that's quite a recent example but I watched quite a lot of things like that and doing the public history MA I started to go 
you're never going to do these things perfectly, obviously, but I became more ambitious in wanting to try and create pieces of history and art, both history and art, that simultaneously have the rigour, the critical reflection, the deep consideration and ethical uh, considerations as well of what problems arise when I tell a story this way that, about real people that lived and died. It was wonderful to see the work that Niall did in their MA dissertation become a five-starred reviewed play, Mohan's Story, at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. It's an excellent example of what collaborative and creative public history can do, tell subtle stories with room for uncertainty, and how that can end up broadening the scope of popular history, engaging people's empathy and identification in new and more democratic ways. Next, Manasi Papale reflects on how we might create what she calls a people's history amid the tensions of funding, of academia, and of the many publics we speak to and work with when we make history. I think what I'm seeing, and this is beyond me and what my practice is about, what I'm seeing on the larger kind of uh, narrative of public history is that it's becoming a people's history. So uh, it's a very, very challenging thing to make people, a person empathize with the feelings of multitudes. It's much easier to have a king and a queen and their personal drama and people will empathize with it because it's a, a human scale. But to, there's this narrative challenge of making people empathize with the larger scale of, of the masses. But I think the work that public historians are doing, especially in telling that story of multitudes or the many versus the few, uh, is really, really important work because then uh, they, the work that they do will then inform what the, the work that public history practitioners like myself would do because I rely on their research and them uh, communicating their research through papers and books and talks to then filter into what I do, which is actual public engagement. Uh, but public history, I think, uh, is it's very, very exciting because I, I think this comes out of like uh, the change in the funding structure of history itself, where it's not just the winners who are funding historians to tell their stories. Uh, it's the public funding, it's the university funding, it's this general interest from the public itself to say that, okay, let's, can, we, can we talk about what happened to these million people, you know, be it migration stories or uh, stories about class and protest. And they are so interesting because uh, this is applied history. Uh, and we can, once it's articulated and processed and communicated, we can much easily see ourselves in that history than we can see ourselves in the history of kings and queens. So I think it's such an exciting field and I'm so happy that so many people are doing it. We're back with Mike Berlin, who reminds us of the layers of contested history and histories of contestation that we are thinking amid. I, I'm going to apologize in advance because I do want you to get back in due course for the next session just to say Russell Square and Bloomsbury Square have a, a very interesting interaction with radical <coughs> movements. There are places that get invaded so or get used or get appropriated. So there are squats. 1946 was a great post-war squat that was down in uh, Montague Street, uh, one of uh, many squats that were formed. There were squats in the 1960s and again more recently during the time of the uh, student protests over high fees. Uh, it was also a place of political meetings, so the Chartists gathered in uh, one of the contingents of the Chartists, a great 
largest demonstration in political history up to the 2003 uh, Iraq War demonstrations, the Chartists marched to Kennington. The northern contingent from North London gathered in, in, uh, in Russell Square, much to the chagrin of the, the Bedford estate. There were riots in uh, the 1760s and again during the Gordon riots of 1780 in Bloomsbury Square. There were also more subtle campaigns. There were campaigns around uh, by groups such as Outrage in the uh, early, uh, early 1990s, uh, trying to get Camden Council to create um, a kind of zone of tolerance for queer people in the square. So it's, it's got a very, very interesting history. And I do apologize if I'm just sort of, kind of going like this. I want to get you back. Great to all meet you, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. So let's go back now. We've tried to show in this podcast the wide range of conversations we had at the What is Public History Now conference, in which we may or may not have gotten a little closer to answering the question of what exactly public history is. We hope to continue these conversations together long into the future. And whatever public history exactly is, it's clear that we should have these conversations about the challenges and possibilities facing all public history practitioners. We'll give the last word on public history's immense potential to Amy Neal, a former MA student at Birkbeck who is, in her words, ready to disrupt and be disrupted by history. I'm Amy Neal. Um, I've just recently graduated with a master's in public history from Birkbeck. I'm currently working in heritage, um, but the big dream is to be in public history and communicate history widely. I think public history is a practice for me. I find it quite radical, kind of left-wing, kind of like challenging. You're questioning why things have been done when, you know, like you're told, oh, we've always done it like that, and you're like, why? So for me, I'm ready to be disruptive, and I think maybe I'm a bit more... Like I said, the older I get, the more radical I feel because I just get really frustrated. So public history practice for me is kind of calling out, calling out and questioning why things are done a certain way, but also being respectful of knowing when to step back because I want to offer solidarity, but I don't want to be like a white savior or getting in and being like, because I have, I'm, I'm working, I'm from a working class background. Um, but I do have a lot of privilege being able to study and do this course. So I think it's also about knowing when to step back, when to facilitate and kind of like, this isn't my story to tell, but this person could do it great. Public history kind of opened my eyes to kind of challenging my own perceptions and my own assumptions about what history is. And now I question everything. It kind of spoils things because you're like, oh no, I used to enjoy that, but actually it's quite problematic. And I think heritage holds the same, it's more like the physical representation, especially in the UK. And it's similarly the way that we're now dealing with heritage. It's like, at one point you could visit a stately home and be like, oh, this is just a lovely day out. Whereas I feel that's becoming more difficult. And not difficult, but I think you need to be more, we need to be more self-aware of where these places kind of came from and what they represent and... I know that people don't want that on a day out, but I think the heritage, I think heritage is changing. I think people are becoming more aware of the implications of heritage, but I think it's incredibly political. And I think people are now having to choose sides, kind of. And I don't like that term. I don't like saying that division, but we now need to like stand up and speak out. <laughs> 
Many thanks to Julia Late and to all the participants in the What is Public History Now conference. You can read more about Julia and the conference and the network that it grew out of on the episode page for this podcast. Please visit our website, historyworkshop.org.uk. You can find us on Twitter at HistoryWON on Facebook and Instagram as History Workshop. This is the History Workshop podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Thanks for listening.